Robots Radio presents... In 1992, Disney Animation Studios gave the world a shining, shimmering, splendid masterpiece of a film. In 2020, we continue our springtime of swill with another Canadian classic. The film is Aladdin. The whiskey is J.P. Weiser's Rye. And we'll review them both. This is... The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week, we are looking at the 1992 Disney animated classic, Aladdin. Why? 10,000 years will give you such a crick in the neck. Hang on a second. Whoa! Wow! Does it feel good to be out of there? I'm telling you, nice to be back, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, where are you from? What's your name? Uh... Uh, Aladdin. Aladdin. Hello, Aladdin. Nice to have you on the show. Can we call you Al or maybe just Din? Or how about Laddie? Sounds like, here, boy. Come on, Laddie. <laughs> Brad, how are you doing today, man? Bro, I am hanging out. We are recording this in the midst of the quarantine. We sure are. Yeah, we tend to record a little bit ahead, but these last two weeks, so Mrs. Doubtfire and today, are the first we've recorded since we've been kind of stowed away in our own homes it's a very different kind of recording experience, Brad, and uh, I'm not sure how much I like it, but, you know, we're getting through. We've got our movies. We've got our whiskey to see us through. Dude, I was literally thinking about that. I have so much whiskey <laughs> <laughs> in my cabinets. I am set. And when, like, Mad Max starts, at least for the first little bit, I'm going to have so much whiskey to trade. Oh, yeah. And, like, we'll just we'll be set, man. <laughs> well, let's hope so. So today we're continuing our series on the films of Robin Williams. Last week we did Mrs. Doubtfire. Today we're probably doing the role that he's best known for, especially among 90s kids, and that is as the genie in this animated movie, Aladdin. Brad, I assume that like most 90s kids, you grew up watching Aladdin. I feel like, you know, this movie came out in the midst of what we call the Disney Renaissance, and of that renaissance, you know, from the late 80s to the late 90s, there are four big movies. You've got The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. And I think that most people would agree that Aladdin is probably not the best movie of the Disney renaissance. But when I talk to a lot of 90s kids, I find that people think that this is probably their favorite movie of that group. Aladdin really struck a chord with a lot of us at a very, very young age. I think Robin Williams' genie had a lot to do with that. So, Brad, first question, have you seen Aladdin before? And where do you think it kind of falls in the ranking of those four movies for you? Yeah, Bob, I've seen Aladdin quite a few times in my life, um, obviously mostly as a kid. I would probably say that this was my second favorite of the Disney movies uh, behind Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast was always my favorite as a kid. But Aladdin always has been a very close second. And I'm going to say, re-watching it as an adult, you know, it's it's been quite some time since I sat down and watched it all the way through. Man, this movie held up super well for me. I, I really enjoyed it this time through. 
I think it's going to be a good discussion today, Brad, because we're going to kind of get into the distinction for a lot of people between greatest movie I've ever seen and my favorite movie. You know, we've been talking about this since we first started the podcast. I think for the two of us, one of our favorite comedy films ever is Anchorman, which is the first movie we ever did kind of as a preview episode. But we both kind of agreed that Anchorman isn't necessarily a great, well-made movie. It's just something really funny to watch. And I feel like with Aladdin, I have a little bit of that. I love this movie. It means a lot to me, but I'm not sure if I can talk about it objectively as a great movie the same way I talk about The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. So, Brad, why don't we get into our favorite segment here on the podcast, which we call Brad Explains. This is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that we've just watched. Uh, today, we are we have a special treat in that this is not something Brad's seeing for the first time. He's seen it many, many times. So, Brad, will you walk our listeners through the plot of the movie Aladdin? Yeah, the movie is about a young street rat uh, named Aladdin living on the streets of Agrabah, and he encounters this princess who escapes from her palace guards and sets out into the market to kind of get a feel for her people and experience a little bit of life outside of the palace, which she has never been outside of. And of course, she meets Aladdin. Um, She nearly gets her hands chopped off because she steals some food for a young boy. And Aladdin saves her, and they kind of have a romantic day just checking out the city, uh, and she immediately is interested in this boy. Uh, Well, meanwhile, the palace vizier, or the second-in-command, has been trying to find his way to a place called the Cave of Wonders. And the Cave of Wonders has within it a magical lamp that has some indeterminate powers that this uh, vizier named Jafar wants. So Jafar finds out that Aladdin is the only one who can go into the Cave of Wonders and get said lamp. And so he orders his guards to capture Aladdin. And when he finds out that Jasmine was actually, you know, kind of fallen in love with this kid, um, he tells her that he had him murdered and that for kidnapping the princess. And Jasmine is really upset. So they go to the Cave of Wonders, Jafar and Aladdin, and Aladdin finds his way through. He gets the lamp. Um, But he accidentally touches some other treasure, or rather I should say his pet monkey Abu does, and the cave comes collapsing down on them, and they're stuck inside the cave, but they have the magic lamp. And when they rub the magic lamp, the famous genie comes out and tells Aladdin that he's able to grant him three wishes. Well, Aladdin tricks him into taking them out uh, without costing him a wish. And the rest of the movie is Aladdin um, getting turned into a prince so that he can go back and marry the princess Jasmine. Lots of other things go on. Jafar eventually gets a hold of the lamp and turns into a big old bad sorcerer. And he, he becomes the sultan of the land. But with quick thinking, uh, Aladdin is able to defeat him, marry the princess, and live happily ever after. And that's Aladdin. Nice job, sir. Thanks, man. So, Brad, part of me really wants to jump right into talking about Robin Williams as the genie. But I actually don't think we should do that because one of the first notes I took was, oh, my gosh, the genie doesn't enter this movie until the 35 minute mark. I do not remember it being that long before the genie shows up. And part of me really appreciates that they invested so much time into the backstory before the genie got there. But this movie is only like an hour and 33 minutes, and that includes end credits. So you're talking about, you know, over a third of the movie 
happens before Robin Williams shows up as the genie. What are your thoughts on that, Brad? Do you feel like the movie suffered for not having him in the film earlier, or did you think it was built up well? Bob, one of the first things that I noticed about this movie was that I really, really love Scott Wenger and uh, Linda Larkin as Aladdin and Jasmine. I mean, their voice acting performances in this movie are just spectacular. Um, They're very sincere. They're very caring. You just you get so much authenticity from them about who they are as a person that I I actually think that beyond the genie giving, you know, Robin Williams giving a spectacular performance, I actually think I like them the most in this movie. And then you get on to Jafar. But like the voice acting in this movie is spectacular. And I think when you wait so long to bring Robin Williams into it, you recognize that the movie isn't necessarily about the genie. The movie is truly about this power struggle between Jafar and the Sultan. And it's about this love story between Jasmine and Aladdin. And you really fall in love with those characters in those first 35 minutes without Robin Williams dominating the screen. Brad, I completely agree with you. And yet at the same time, I think this is going to be my first big complaint about the way the movie is structured. Because I was on board for everything that they had built up Like, I was invested in Aladdin and Jasmine, and you're absolutely right. They're the most compelling characters early on. Bob, can I tell you what you're about to say? What? I think I know. Uh, I have done this podcast long Let's see what you have to say. Do it. Bob, it annoys you that they spent so much time investing in this world and creating, like, an internal logic to it. That when you have the genie come into the film, you know, 35 minutes in and start doing Ed Sullivan impressions and bringing modern, you know, jokes, uh, the Little Mermaid is mentioned, like when you get all of those things added into the film, it just takes away from the world that you've created already. So I will say this. Yes, you're 100 percent right. But that actually wasn't what I was going to say. That's Here's not what, what I, you were going to say. No, oh, I, but man. I was going to get to that at some point. Don't worry. <laughs> but. But I think the thing that really frustrates me is that they spend so much time investing in all these other characters that when Robin Williams comes in, they don't really use him as a supporting character. He kind of comes in the movie and takes everything over. And I think that's that's my biggest gripe with this film is that Aladdin almost takes a back seat for a good portion of the movie to the genie because they kind of tailor the whole movie to Robin Williams once Robin Williams comes in. And I felt myself really wanting to get back to the real story of the movie a lot of times when the genie was on screen, which isn't what you want. And I love Robin Williams and I love his antics in this movie, but sometimes I felt like they went on a little long and they actually took away from the main story that was trying to be told. See, I... I would I would partially agree with you. I think especially when he's first introduced, it goes on for a very long time. But you get an amazing musical number out of it. And honestly, the scene when they're in the Oasis turning him into a prince, I, I think is pitch perfect. Um, yeah, I actually agree with that because they, they have such a great back and forth with each other. I think it's when the genie is like dominating scenes. That's when I really get upset because it's not his story. It's Aladdin's story. Yeah, there's a few moments like the first time he meets Jazz. Well, the second time he meets Jasmine as the prince when he goes up on her balcony at night. Mm-hmm. Like the, there's a few parts there where he's the bumblebee and you're kind of like, OK, I get it. You're a bumblebee. You're funny. But even then, I just love him because even then he's just this little annoying buzzing, you know, noise in Aladdin's voice telling him to be yourself. 
I don't know, man. I, I don't think that Robin Williams takes away the focus from Aladdin as much as it seems like. I, I really feel like he enhances Aladdin's presence on screen. So here's the thing. I, I like this movie. Like, it's not like I dislike it. And I feel like I, I'm just going to sound like I'm griping all day. And I don't mean to. But I think I had the same problem with the genie that I had with Timon and Pumbaa in The Lion King, where I felt like they were creating this really great dramatic structure, you know, in this awesome showdown between Jafar and Aladdin and the Sultan. And then they kind of try to undercut it with all this slapstick humor. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's like, okay, I understand that they're doing this for the kids. They're doing it to keep kids invested and giggling and happy. But I had problems with Timon and Pumbaa. And I feel like with the genie, it's like they took that dynamic and it was like cranked up to 11 because Robin Williams is just so much more frantic. And see, you know. I, I'm not going to lie, though. There's a part of me that that goes into this film knowing what the genie's going to be. And yet he still gets me every time. And I, I think it's partially because the comedy is so tongue in cheek and it, it's very much so pointed at the adults, even when he's doing physical comedy that they've animated for him. He's often making jokes that are going to fly above the head of any kid who's watching it. And so as an adult, I can watch it and appreciate it and be like, huh, yeah, he's actually making some pretty funny jokes there. I, I don't know. I I didn't mind his antics as much as it, it seems. And I'm not saying that they like bothered you a ton, Bob, but but, you know, it didn't seem to be your favorite part. No, it didn't. And maybe we should just get that conversation that you were alluding to out of the way now, Brad, the, the pop culture references. This is something that like. It bothers me, I guess, a lot more than it bothers you in movies. And I had to kind of keep reminding myself as I watched this movie that Aladdin was kind of the first movie to really do this, to really bring in these pop culture references, because Robin Williams was constantly making them as he was, you know, improvising his scenes. And this was pre Shrek doing the Matrix 360 jump thing. This was pre all these crappy CGI movies that are coming out now that rely on that sort of shtick. And so, you know, when I when I think, OK, if, if it's 1992 and I'm in the theater watching this for the first time, I think those jokes are probably fresher and funnier and more surprising. And I think a lot of movies are just kind of copying what Aladdin started now. So I think I, I can have a little bit more grace with Aladdin doing it because movies really weren't making those kind of jokes, you know, in animated film until this point. Yeah, I mean, really, most animated films were much more self-serious. They took their own internal world much more seriously. And with this movie, they just throw that right out the window. But I, I think there's something about Robin Williams' outrageous personality that is matched with, you know, we talked about this last week with Mrs. Doubtfire. Robin Williams is one of the most authentic, sincere actors I've ever seen, whether he's, you know, acting in person or, you know, doing lines for an animated film. He just comes across so sincerely. So once again, just like last week, there were moments in this movie when the genie was being kind of quiet and serious that I found myself absolutely drawn in by his character and so I, I didn't mind when he made the pop cultural references. I didn't mind when he was a little bit more of a slapstick comedian because I could tell he had a deep beating heart behind it all. And, and he wasn't just some shallow comedic farce, that, you know, that was thrust upon the movie. 
I don't think Robin Williams is to blame for anything that I might have gripes with about this movie. And as I watched even the beginning of the film before the genie comes into play, I started to notice, you know, this movie has a lot more slapstick humor in it than any of those other kind of big four Disney classics did. You know, you've got shots of people kind of falling off buildings in like a Looney Tunes style way and going ah, as they fall. And, and I was like, oh, man, OK, like I see what we're going for here. And then it kind of dawned on me, I think that's probably a good part of the reason why 90s kids love this movie so much, because I think the humor in this movie appeals way more to small children. It goes for the silliness more than anything in The Lion King or Beauty and the Beast ever did. And that's not to say that, like, I think this movie is only good for little kids. But when we all saw it, we were at a really, really young age and all of the humor worked for us. There wasn't a ton that went over our heads. Some of those pop culture references did, but all of that was supported by these great slapstick moments with the genie or with Abu or, you know, it's like it was setting us up to appreciate this movie just with the level of humor that we got. Yeah, the movie has a lot going on for it in the comedic element but really what drew me in this time was the dramatic element of the movie you know i i really fell in love with jasmine in this movie like she is such a powerful personality i think that the way that she fights for herself for her right to choose who she's going to marry is is really ahead of its time and i was kind of curious how you felt about her character in this film and and especially how it was played by linda larkin Yeah, I actually I really love Jasmine. I thought that the voice performance was great. I thought Jasmine was more convincing in her beliefs than even like a Belle or an Ariel. One of the problems that people seem to have with the character of Belle in Beauty and the Beast is that she kind of looks down on everyone around her. She's really condescending to the people in her village. And with Jasmine, you have someone who can't really break out of the system that she's in. Like she knows that she's never going to have true, full, total independence. But within that system of arranged marriages, she rebels against it, at least to some extent. And I think that I really appreciated that it seemed like a more realistic character trait where she understands what's going to have to happen at the end of the day, that there's no way that they're going to just completely abolish this arranged marriage practice as terrible as it might be, but that she's going to make her voice heard in the meantime. She's going to try to have her say in who she marries You know, even if she doesn't have full control over how the marriage happens. Your Majesty, I am Prince Ali Ababwa. Just let her meet me. I will win your daughter. How dare you? All of you, standing around deciding my future? I am not a prize to be won. Oh, dear. And I actually really appreciated that they allowed her to kind of explore those nuances a little bit. Yeah, and it does kind of lead to a weird place of like, at the end of the movie, well, now that we have a young boy that, you know, or teenage guy that we like, the Sultan's like, well, I'm the Sultan. I can just change the rules. That's right. You've certainly proven your worth as far as I'm concerned. It's that law that's the problem. Father? Well, am I Sultan or am I Sultan? From this day forth, the princess shall marry whoever she deems worthy. Him, I choose. I choose you, Aladdin. And so, like, there's some internal logic that 
you know, it's a little bit of a struggle. But as far as the character of Jasmine goes, I just I just couldn't get over how much I loved her in this movie. She has an ability to convey a, a sense of realism to her situation, that she's a woman who's stuck, you know, with archaic rules and an archaic system. But she's going to do whatever she can to fight that system and try to better her situation. And I, and I really admired her for that on this this uh, watch through. I, I think that Jasmine is such a great character, but honestly, I, I think one of the best characters in this film is its villain, Jafar. You know, when I was watching this, it reminded me of something you said about the Lion King, actually, that one of the reasons the Lion King didn't do well in the new version was because they did not cast a very great Scar. You know, he wasn't especially intimidating. He 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 didn't really cause any trauma in your mind. And once again, you know, I saw the live action version of Aladdin and the Jafar that they picked was absolutely pitiful. He was not menacing. He was not scary. And I get that it's easier to choose scenery when you're an animated character. But I thought that Jonathan Freeman was terrifying in this movie. You are late. A thousand apologies, oh patient one. You have it then. I had to slit a few throats, but I got it. Ah, ah, ah. The treasure. Ah, Trust me, my pungent friend. You'll get what's coming to you. What's coming to you? And and he just does such a great job of being the villain in this film. I, I was kind of curious what you had to think about him, Bob. You know, in the grand scheme of Disney villains, I think Jafar is right up there at the top or, or near the top. Rather, I don't think he is as great of a villain all time as Scar. But I'll also say that without Jafar, I don't think you ever get Scar in The Lion King. I think Disney was learning, you know, from the beginning that you have to have a good villain. Disney's first movie was Snow White. The villain in Snow White great villain. And I think they were relearning at this period that the darker they went, the more power they ultimately gave to the villain, the more hopeless it seemed, the better the dramatic story ended up being. This movie gets really, really dark. And Jafar is a terrifying, terrifying villain. Now, he doesn't murder Mufasa like like Scar does. But I think that the voice performance, the character arc, everything sets Jafar up to be like an all-time classic villain. Well, and one of the reasons I I like Jafar more than Scar is because in the end, Scar is a failed, you know, king of the pride. By the end of the movie, the pride is dying. There's no food to eat. Somehow the land is is dying around them. There's no green grass. It's it's all falling apart. And so for me, that kind of takes away from Scar's power a little bit that he actually just kind of sucks and is terrible as a king. Whereas with Jafar, like his power level just increases and increases and increases. And by the end of the film, you know, he has to be the most powerful sorcerer in the world and then the most powerful genie in the world. And so I think there's something cool about Jafar that even at the end when he's defeated, they didn't defeat him by taking away his powers. They defeated him by making him more powerful than anyone else, which I, for some reason that just makes him all the better of a villain for me. That's a really good point, Brad. And before we get any further, I think maybe this is a good point for us to hit pause 
because we still have a lot to talk about with this film. I want to talk about the quality of the animation, obviously the quality of these awesome songs that we get in this film. But before we get there, what do you say we try this Wiser's Rye and we continue the springtime of Swill? Let's get to it. Right, so today we are checking out J.P. Weiser's Rye. Now, we are continuing the series that we're calling The Springtime of Swill, where we're featuring just basically bottom shelf whiskey, something that, you know, somebody may have told you about at one point that you've been really hesitant to try. We are trying them all, Brad. And I found out that J.P. Weiser's is a Canadian whiskey brand. It's actually the oldest continuously operating whiskey brand in Canada. They have a flagship label that they call JP Weiser's Deluxe. We're drinking their rye, and rye is actually a really popular variant of Canadian whiskey. It seems like they can make rye a little bit easier just based on what they're typically using with their barrels and things like that. So most Canadian whiskey brands also have a rye variant, and that's what we're trying today. Now, I will be honest and say that we did not pick up a fifth of this, but we did pick up were those cute little 50 milliliter shot glass size samples. And Brad, each of these cost us 99 cents. I was going to say, Bob, you forgot to mention the uh, plasticness nature. <laughs> it is. They are very plasticky. So uh, it's exactly what you would expect for 99 cents. I would imagine that a fifth of this costs, you know, about $15, which is what we're kind of making our cutoff for the springtime of Swill. So knowing that we are invested very little, $2 total, let's get into talking about this Weiser's Rye. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose of this? I mean, Bob, when I first poured it out, there was definitely some notes of ethanol, quite a bit actually. But after it sat for a minute, I... I, I'm not going to say that I picked up on spice because I, I really was hoping to get a little bit of rye on there. I, I'm really still searching for it. Can't quite find it. There is a little bit of sourness to it, kind of like a green apple. I, I'm really not picking up a ton on the nose, though. I'm going to go ahead and give it a three and a half on the nose. Yeah, Brad, I'm right there with you. I think one of the things that I've noticed about some of these cheaper quality whiskeys is that you really have to let them kind of breathe for a while in the glass. And Brad and I, full disclosure, we poured these out into our glasses a while ago. And when I first poured it out, there was this overwhelming smell. Sometimes you get the, the scent of nail polish remover, that acetone kind of smell. I didn't even get that as much as I got actual nail polish. This was like an offensively bad nose to start with. It's like a nice light brown color to paint your nails with. <laughs> right. And so I set it aside for a minute and I kind of came back to it about three or four minutes later. And you're right, Brad. The first thing I got off of it was green apple, which I really liked. And the more this sits out, the more I'm starting to pick up what you would expect. Some caramel notes, maybe a little bit of spice, but like you said, not much. It's just not a very compelling nose, and you shouldn't have to wait 10 minutes for a whiskey to, to develop into something that smells good. I'm giving it a four on the nose. So why don't we give it a sip and see what it tastes like? Mm, it tastes, uh, how, how, how do I put this? Cheap? 
Yeah, you know it's really funny. You know, we always take notes when we're when we're tasting our whiskeys. The things I said about it were this: it's really thin, it's really sweet, it's not totally unpleasant, and it tastes like really cheap whiskey. It just has what you would expect. A che- it, it tastes like there's been some grain that they have distilled and fermented and put in a bottle. I can't even say that I would be able to identify this as a rye if you just put it in front of me. It has that kind of just generic alcohol burn to it, a little bit of spice. But if you told me this was a really thin, cheap bourbon, I don't really know if I'd be able to tell the difference just based off the taste. Could you, Brad? No, honestly, I, I was trying to put my finger on something as I tasted it. And you're exactly right. I I don't know what kind of a whiskey this is. Like, I would drink it and go, oh, yeah, that's a whiskey. But I I, I couldn't tell you where it was from. I couldn't tell you if it was, you know, bourbon or rye. Uh, Like, there's there's no there's no real profile going on with this. No, there's like there's no distinguishing characteristics. The thing is, though, I don't hate the way it tastes. Like, I think it tastes pretty good. And especially knowing that we only spent 99 cents on it, I'm like, yeah, this is exactly what I would expect, if not a little better from a cheap whiskey. Yeah, I I would kind of agree with you. It's it's weird. I I don't mind what it is, especially when I know how little it costs, but I don't really know what it is. So I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, it's it's a five on taste for me. I'm going to give it a six on taste. I, I, I enjoy what it tastes like. I just don't think it's living up to tasting like a rye. And on finish, I'm kind of in the same spot. It's sweet. The first sip that I took, I felt like it was very oily, like it really covered my mouth um, in a really pleasant way. And I think the longer it sits out, the more I do kind of start to get some of those rye notes on the very back end of the finish. It has that kind of souring, you know, almost bitter kind of bready effect that you get from a rye. I don't think this is a terrible finish either. It's very short. So if you're not a big fan of rye, this might be a really kind of gentle, easy introduction into rye. I think I'm going to give it a six and a half on the finish. Yeah, I'm going to give it a four and a half on the finish. There, there's not much lingering with you other than a little bit of alcohol burn. You know, that's that's really all I have left after about six or seven seconds. Uh, not very impressive on the finish overall. All right. That brings us to overall balance. This is where we talk about nose, taste and finish all put together. Did it blend together nicely for us? Was it a good experience? From beginning to end, Brad, what would you give this whiskey on the balance? And honestly, I I think I'm going to give it a five. Uh, it's decent on the balance. Uh, it doesn't promise anything and it doesn't deliver anything. It's just a cheap kind of sweet whiskey that gives you a nice little bit of burn. And I, I'm OK with that. Here's the crazy thing about this, Brad. Like, I feel like this is going to kind of get lower scores. But I would probably prefer this to almost everyone we've tried in the springtime of Swill so far. It's just, it's really inoffensive. I feel like it's really easy to drink. It's sweet. It doesn't have any characteristics that you would dislike. And I hate to penalize that, but you're right. I think it's not a super well-balanced whiskey because that nose was so harsh that it almost turned me off from drinking it. It's a lot better once you actually take a sip of it than it is prior to that. So I'm just going to give it a five on balance as well. Yeah. And and for my overall value score, I'm going to guess that this is like a $10 fifth. Did, did so, you find a so price? So actually in the state of Ohio, they charge $17.95 for a fifth of this, which I'm surprised at. I have a feeling this is going to fluctuate in price across the country. Um, in Kentucky, I, where I bought these little small sample sizes, I think a fifth was cheaper than that. And, you know, especially if you're only going to be trying one of these 50 milliliter bottles for a dollar, 
I think that's a better value. But you're right, Brad. We typically go based off how much a fifth would be. Yeah. And if a fifth is going to cost you, I don't know, anywhere from 13 to $18, it seems like it might be in that range. I'm not actually going to give this a very high score on value. I, I think that you're right in everything you said. This is surprisingly good. And when I say surprisingly, heavy emphasis on surprisingly. But I'm just going to give it a three on value. If if you're paying 15 bucks for this, I think you can get better rise than this for 15 bucks. I think you get better bourbons than this for 15 bucks. So I, I'm just going to give it a three. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Brad. I don't think my score is going to be as low, though. I do think you can get better quality whiskey in either of those categories for the price. And I actually agree with you that I think this should be 10 or 11 bucks for a fifth. And if it was, it would be like a nine out of 10, I think, for me on value. However, knowing how little we spent on this, you know, and and if you're stacking up this compared to Canadian Mist in the same way, we kind of scored Canadian Mist not so much on the price of a fifth, but the price of these small samples. Look, if you want to invest a dollar in something, I think this is actually a pretty good value. This is about the best little glass of whiskey you can get for a dollar. I'm going to give it a six and a half on value. It's not great, but it's a lot easier of a sipper than I think anything else we've tried so far in the springtime of Swill. Yeah, and and I actually am going to recommend this whiskey with the caveat you buy the $1 50 milliliter bottle. Absolutely. I, I honestly think if you are if you're just, you know, adventurous and you want to try something different, expand your whiskey horizons, go for it. Spend a dollar at your local liquor store um, after the coronavirus epidemic is over and you know, you'll get something kind of interesting. But if you're going to buy a fifth of it, yeah, maybe not. I think the best thing you can say about this whiskey is that it's completely inoffensive. Like all of the whiskeys we've had in the springtime of Swill, Brad, you and I are used to drinking barrel proof whiskeys. So we can handle a little bit of harshness, a little bit of bitterness, a little bit of alcohol burn. If you're new to drinking whiskey and you've never really liked it, you've never really wanted to try it before. I feel like this might be a really good gateway into the world of whiskey because there's just so little on it that I feel like people would dislike. I'm trying to think of the most like inoffensive actor in the world to compare this whiskey to, but I can't really think of anybody. Bob, can you back me up? I was going to say Tom Hanks, but that's not true. We love Tom Hanks. Tom, I was going to say Tom's also an all-star. This is like the Bill Paxton of whiskey. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is definitely got, got some Paxton overtones to it. <laughs> so I'm coming out to a 28 out of 50. Brad, what's your final score? We're actually pretty spread apart on this, Bob. I'm at a 21 out of 50. Oh, wow. And that's funny because you're well below the midpoint on this of 25, but you're still recommending. Yeah, I was actually thinking when I recommended it, you know, with the caveat, this might be the lowest scored whiskey that I've recommended. Oh, for sure. And I think it's probably the lowest scored one we've had in the springtime of Swill. That's bringing us out to an average of a 24 and a half out of 50 or just a 49 out of 100. And yet, this is why it's important to listen to the podcast and not just look at our scores. We both recommend this whiskey. So if you are at the liquor store anytime soon and you see this J.P. Weiser's rye on the shelf, pick up a small bottle of it, put down a dollar and tell us what you think. But in the meantime, you can continue listening as we move on to finish our discussion about the film Aladdin. Let's get to it.
right, so that was J.P. Weiser's Rye, a whiskey that finished below the halfway point, but that we both recommend. I think it was a really interesting whiskey segment this week, Brad, but it's time for us to get back into talking about the movie Aladdin. And Brad, before we get any further, I want to talk about the quality of the animation itself in this film. This was right at the forefront of computer graphics, and I think Beauty and the Beast was probably the officially the first movie that Disney used those 3D computer graphics on, especially in that big ballroom scene. And with the success of Beauty and the Beast, I feel like they went kind of all in on including some of those elements here in Aladdin. You could see it in those first couple scenes of uh, like the Arabian Nights song when they're panning past some of the, the rock formations. You see it in Aladdin's escape from the Cave of Wonders when they're like flying down that rock wall. It looks like the movie Tron. It's 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 real bad. And I wanted to get your take on uh, the Cave of Wonders, especially because the the talking panther head, I think, was just a really, really bad example of early 3D computer graphics. And it kind of distracted me a little bit. Brad, was it a problem for you at all? Bob, I, we've kind of, you know, had small quibbles here or there on each other's views on this movie. I'm just going to full on blast you for this. I don't think that's a valid opinion at all. I, like, I think the animation in this movie is fine. You know, the one scene where they do go over the rock wall and they kind of fall into the, the next area of the cave. You know, there's a few scenes like that that aren't perfect. But I absolutely love the panther head for the Cave of Wonders. I think that the animation style in this film is spectacular. And I, I didn't the the 3D animation did not bother me at all or take me out of the film in any way whatsoever. I guess my biggest complaint with it is that I just felt like it wasn't necessary. Like I love the design of the cave. I think having that that panther head rise out of the sand was awesome. I thought that the way that they animated the actual location of the lamp kind of on top of that steep rock formation, that was incredible. I just wonder why did you have to do it with computers? Like if everything else in the movie is 2D conventional traditional animation, why did they need to make that panther head be CGI? Because for me, it was just so it's really blatantly obvious when there is like a CG element in the scene and it kind of distracted me from everything else that was going on. Yeah, I, I think you just have a more critical eye for that, Bob, because I I honestly, you know, just watching it now as a 29 year old, I didn't honestly notice that many scenes where it was very obvious. You know, there's a few parts where you go, OK, yeah, that was a little bit of CGI. But overall, I, I really didn't notice it that much. I have to say that the the design in this movie is incredible. The interiors of the palace, the sort of marble work, uh, the even the exteriors of the palace by the fountain and, and the balcony where Aladdin picks up Jasmine. I think that the inside of the Cave of Wonders, the way they animate the piles of gold, it was just so cool, Brad. And I really have to give credit for the design elements in this movie. Even if I do disagree with some of the CG stuff, I think that all of the locations were really unique looking and really inspired. Yeah, I, and I think that's one of the greatest strengths of this movie is that no matter where you go in the film, it is absolutely beautiful. You know, mm -hmm. when you're inside the palace, when Jasmine is looking at her birds and, and Raja, her tiger, is with her, or if you're out on the marketplace in the streets of Agrabah, it's an absolutely beautiful movie. And I, I just, I really love the animation. 
And even things like the genie, you know, with some of his pop cultural references, I love the fact that they have him in the shirt that he would wear while doing his stand up comedy. I like I just think stuff like that is so funny. And so like the animation all around, I think, is just spectacular. All right. So, Brad, before we wrap up today, I want to talk about the songs in this film. Disney was coming off of Beauty and the Beast, which I think was a high point for the songwriting, you know, of all time in the Disney canon. And the songs in this movie, I feel like, are right there with Beauty and the Beast. They are some of the most well-written, especially the lyrics. I think what more modern Disney films, more contemporary Disney films are missing nowadays is that sense of lyricism. Some of the phrases they use to rhyme, I'm thinking of that really early song, One Jump Ahead, kind of Aladdin's introduction song. And there's a line where he says something like, I should have used a nom de plume. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like you would never get a turn of phrase like that in a Disney movie today. Yeah, the the music in this movie is spectacular. And honestly, it's one of the reasons I've returned to this movie over and over in my life. You know, when the genie comes in with Friend Like Me, uh, when they're riding the carpet and and Aladdin is introducing her to the world around him, like the music that they have written for this film is 10 out of 10 across the board. I can't think of a single song in this movie that disappoints in any way whatsoever. You know, when he when Aladdin is introduced to the city of Agrabah, that that might be one of the most chill inducing, like just amazing moments of the film. And it's all because the music from the melody to the lyrics is written so daggone well. All right. So I want to play a little quick game here, Brad. If we take out the opening song, Arabian Nights, because that's only like 30 seconds long. This movie has four main songs in it. You've got One Jump Ahead, Friend Like Me, the genie's first song, Prince Ali, and A Whole New World, which are all absolute bangers. Let's be honest here. I want you to rank those four songs, Brad. Which what's your <laughs> what's favorite to least favorite? How would you rank the songs in Aladdin? If we're just going favorite to least favorite, I, I would probably say A Whole New World is the best. No question. I I think Prince Ali is my favorite. Mm. Uh hands down. Uh Prince Ali is so good. I'd probably go Prince Ali, A Whole New World, One Jump, and Friend Like Me. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty close to you, Brad. I would say for sure. I think Friend Like Me would be the lowest one. And it's a fun song, and it's kind of like the BR guest of this movie. But it doesn't really have much of a melody, and Robin Williams isn't really known for being a singer. And I think they, you know, he kind of talks a lot of that song. I was really shocked at how good that song One Jump Ahead is this time around, especially the lyrics to it. And I think, like you said, Brad, that's what really stands out about this film. All the problems that I have with the scripting and the comedy, whatever, when you get to a whole new world... All that goes out the window. The entire sequence of A Whole New World and Aladdin taking Jasmine on that carpet ride is perfect. It is just a perfect piece of filmmaking. And I felt like the whole movie was elevated in my mind when we got to that ballad because it's just a perfect song. Like you said, there's four main songs in this movie. And even at the end of the film, when Jafar is singing, you know, a different version of Prince Ali it's just so good. Every part about the music in this movie elevates the rest of the film to very, very great heights. And we kind of get to that point where I I'm curious, Bob, what do you think about this movie? What would your final score be? Would you recommend it? Because, you know, we we've talked about it for a while now, and I I'm just coming around. I think this is one of the best Disney animated films I've seen. 
So Brad, I'm going to be honest with you. I've really been going back and forth on what I'm going to give this movie because if I'm being honest, this movie has just never really done it for me the way that The Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast or The Lion King have. I've always thought this was the worst of those four. And watching it today, I'm like, you know, everything else besides the music is like a six for me. But the music is so good that I absolutely am not going to give this movie a six out of ten. But at the same time, I think they really, really lean into the slapstick a little too much in this movie. I don't think it's balanced out as well as they did in Beauty and the Beast. I don't think all of the intrigue and politics is as good as it is in The Lion King. It's a good movie. It's solid. I think it follows that Disney formula really well. But like, is it a transcendently good animated movie? No, I don't think it is. I will still recommend it, but I'm going to give this movie a 7 out of 10. Yeah, Bob, that's uh, that's a travesty right there. I was watching this movie today, and I kept trying to convince myself that it wasn't as good as I had thought as a kid, You know that it didn't deserve the high ranking in my mind that it had had. But my heart was just drawn in once again by the beautiful voice acting performances by pretty much everybody in this movie, Gilbert Gottfried included. You know, I'm I'm sad that we haven't mentioned him at all. But like everybody in this film turns in what I would say to be a spectacular performance. When you look at the animation and the world that they created, it's so much different than all of the other worlds they had created thus far. You know, I I just think that between the character of Jasmine and Aladdin and Jafar and all the conflict that they have, and then on top of that, you add the music. You know, I was trying to convince myself to give this movie a nine or a nine and a half. But Bob, by the end of the film, I just I remember just thinking to myself, this movie is a 10 out of 10. I absolutely love this movie. I didn't think I was going to give it that score going into it. But by the end of the film, I, I really couldn't find almost anything to complain about. I was blown away. I love this movie, Bob. It's a 10 out of 10 for me. Yeah. And Brad, I, I don't have a problem with people thinking that. I, like I said at the beginning, this is a lot of people's favorite Disney movie from when they were growing up. I do have to ask you this, though. Clarifying question. We've always said on our show that just because we give a movie a higher score than another movie doesn't necessarily mean at the end of the day that we think that movie's better. You know, we're not comparing apples to apples here. But I have to ask you, Brad, I remember you giving The Lion King a nine and a half out of ten. And at the time, you were saying that there was only one Disney movie that you thought was better. And that movie was Beauty and the Beast. I recall our conversation. But now you've given Aladdin a 10 out of 10. And if you had to put these movies head to head, do you think that you actually think Aladdin is the better film? I like Aladdin more than I like uh, Lion King. Yeah. I would probably put them on similar footing as as far as quality of film goes. Yeah. And I think that's a really fair point. And that gets us back to this conversation we've been having our whole pot, you know, the whole time this podcast has existed about favorite versus greatest and that's a totally valid argument. It's it's one thing to say, you know, I think The Lion King is maybe the objectively better movie, but I just like Aladdin better. And I think that's kind of where I'm at with a couple of these other Disney movies. I think Aladdin is an objectively good movie. It's just not my favorite one. And I've never quite had the attachment that some people have. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's not just about what Brad and I think. It's also about what you think. And we want to hear, Film and Whiskey Nation, what do you think about the film Aladdin? If you want to connect with us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, our handle is at Film Whiskey. Or you could give us a call on our call-in line. 
Call and leave us a voicemail. We know you're at home. You're not doing anything. Call our call-in line. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we're going to be looking at another Robin Williams film, one that very few people have seen, but I think is one of his very best performances. It's from 1990. The film is called Awakenings. So, Brad, we're going to check that one out next week. And for the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. know if i'm gonna have a chance to say this on the episode so i just want to say it now it really bothered me how much they just made abu snoopy from the the peanuts christmas movie like he <laughs> even had the same voice as, as snoopy i was like you guys just blatantly ripped off snoopy for this monkey i actually pretty heavily disagree with you what I, it's the same voice i don't think it's the same voice at all Oh, why, Sultan, how may I serve you? Man, yeah, Snoopy definitely feels like a different voice. <laughs>